Welcome to Brook USA on the Road. Our mission at Brook USA is to significantly improve the welfare of working horses, donkeys, and mules, and the people they serve throughout Asia, Africa, the Middle East, the Americas, and the Caribbean by raising funds and responsibly directing them to the areas of greatest need. Brook USA connects private philanthropists with their passion for helping relieve the suffering of working equines and their owners. In each podcast episode, you'll hear a report from one of our board members on the current initiatives for our organization. You'll also enjoy updates from our Brook USA ambassadors, who range from top-level international writers to best-selling authors. I'm your host, Julianne Neal. In this episode, you'll have the opportunity to learn more about Brook USA, a nonprofit, board led organization dedicated to alleviating the suffering of working equines and the people they serve in the developing world. Margaret Dupre and her husband, Bob, own and operate Cherry Knoll Farm with locations in Wellington, Florida and West Grove, Pennsylvania. These equestrian centers are the home of high performance horses that compete internationally in dressage and show jumping. Currently, Dupre serves on the United States Equestrian Team Foundation's Board of Trustees, on the Board of Directors of the Hamilton Family Charitable Trust, on the Wilson College Board of Trustees, the American Angus Foundation Ad Hoc Committee. She was the trailblazer for Equa Assist Program, the first home care nursing program for horses, providing compassionate and continuity of care from hospital to home for ill or post-surgical equines. Paralympian Rebecca Becca Hart has spent half of her life at Blue Hill Farm perfecting classical dressage. Born with familial spastic paraplegia, a genetic disease that causes muscle wasting and lack of control from the waist down, Becca is a three-time Paralympian in 2008, 2012, and 2016, competing in dressage at Rio in 2016, London in 2012, and Beijing in 2008, earning a fourth-place finish. She's earned five USEF national championships and represented the United States at the 2010 Alltech FEI World Equestrian Games. She works with the Hereditary Spastic Paraplegia Foundation to work toward bringing awareness about HSP. She also works with children dealing with HSP and in her free time enjoys kayaking, sailing, camping, and rock climbing. Ladies, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. After saying all that, I somehow can't believe either one of you have any free time at all. So for rock climbing and then anything else, I'm very impressed that that you all can both do that. So I'm so glad to be able to speak with you today. First of all, you two have known each other for a long time. So I'm going to ask, can you remember what, what was the first circumstance of your meeting? When did you meet for the first time? 
I'll go first. Um, I think Becca was still at Blue Hill Farm and she was getting ready to go to Beijing and she needed to, she needed a different place to train and a different and a facility that had an audio system for her freestyle. So she, her trainer then, Missy Ranshausen, called me up and asked if it was possible if she could come and train, you know, kind of use the facility. I said, sure, come along. Anytime in the afternoon's great. And she came. And from there, it's kind of been go, go, go. Quite a partnership, huh? <laughs> Quite a partnership, yes. So, Becca, do you remember that first meeting? I do, because Margaret's got this amazing farm in Pennsylvania. And I remember walking into her covered arena and just being completely floored because it felt like um, kind of like a ballet studio for me. It's so elegant and beautiful. And the wood is just the infrastructure of the entire building is just phenomenal. And I was like, wow, I get to ride here. And um, it was just such a great atmosphere. And she was so warm and welcoming and just kind of letting me come over with my horse. She didn't really know me at all at that point. And um, then it was just able to build from that moment. So it was just such an amazing experience. And just, uh, I always feel at home when I go into that arena in Pennsylvania. And so she has really supported your international travel and professional goals from, from a long time. And you, you actually co-owned the horse that you rode for those, for the Olympic games? For, um, for the games in Rio, we had a co-owned horse named Schroeder's Romani that, um, and also for Normandy in, um, the world equestrian games as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's exciting. Well, so a freestyle to me, and like you mentioned, the ballet aspect of it is just such an art. And so I'm just, I'm intrigued by anyone who does that. Is that your favorite part of the dressage thing or, or not is, am I assuming? (laughs) No, I think it is. It, for me, it, what's so, so interesting about working with an equine is that normally in a sports situation, you talk to your fellow uh, teammates and in horses, you know, there's this silent language and each horse has their own dialect. And I think learning each horse's kind of idiosyncrasies and, and their individual dialects so that you can then go out and perform um, when you need to an international competition. I think that for me is what's so fascinating is putting those puzzle pieces together and really relying on um, that horse because an equestrian without a horse is just a person and you have to, so you really need your, your equine partner. Absolutely. Now, who was the, the mastermind developing the freestyles and that sort of choosing the music? Was there a certain style of music that fit this horse in particular? We use a gal by the name of Marlene Whitaker, and she's very good at, um, I have a dog that wants to play. Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, she's very good at finding the kind of the right music to fit the horse for what for whatever level you're doing and because I've used her for some of my horses that have done freestyles so Becca and her would get together and and talk about what kind of music are you looking for you know figure out the stadium that we're going to be in or is it going to be outside is it going to be inside there are all kinds of little technical decals on the type of music and how you want it to to be heard and to be interpreted there's an also an interpretation in in the ride you kind of have a beginning a middle and an end and so even though with becca just walking and trotting you still have to have a beginning a middle and an end 
So it's, uh, she's very creative. And so is Becca too, because we sit there and see what worked, what didn't. That is, I mean, to me, that's fascinating because you've got the technical technical aspects of it and figuring out, you know, in your corner, how deep do you go in your corner? Maybe today, not quite so much. And does it still fit for you to make that transition at, at, or at A or whatever? So, I mean, that to me, somebody who can do that and plan it out and then execute it correctly, that's phenomenal. So I have to ask, Margaret, you have two locations for your farm and, and you've got to be very, very busy with all of the things that you do. I mean, you, your commitment to the betterment of equestrian sport and well-being of animals it has been part of your life for quite some time. You were involved in numerous organizations locally, such as the Canine Partners for Life and Springbrook Farm. And so how did that transition you? Both of you are actually Brook USA ambassadors, I should have mentioned in the beginning. So how did the local work begin? How did you get involved in all that? And then how did that bring you into Brook USA? For me, um, I think because of our, the, the Hamilton family, it was family foundation and my parents started it and they wanted to enrich the lives of the children and improve their quality of education in the city of Philadelphia, Camden and uh, Camden, New Jersey. So education for me has always been something that I have wanted to support. And for Children today, they need a lot more help in their education than probably, you know, we all went to school and we went to school and being able to help those children that are less fortunate and to provide them with books, learning how to read, how to write, how to make themselves presentable and uh, there's all kinds of facets and in the education and so that's kind of where I uh that's kind of my background on why I support a lot of educational youth educational programs uh and so with Brooke they at the time were when they first came to the U.S. Brooke USA they were trying to tell people about what the Brook does in Europe. And I thought it was very fascinating that they are trying to teach the people of third world backwards countries to how to take care of the animal that provides them with their food, their water, money so they can buy things. And so I thought that was, that fit kind of like right into something that I, that I enjoy is making, trying to make a change and, and educating people. And so that's how I basically got involved with the Brook USA and the, the committee or Emily thought it was a great thing. And therefore I became the first ambassador. That is really, really cool. So was the ambassador title sort of because of you? I mean, it sounds like you were you were out there pushing. Yes, it's I think it's people that believe in their program, in what they do in helping to teach people how to take care of their horses, you know, how to 
how to trim their feet, how to feed them. We've raised money for water troughs because they wouldn't give their horses water. So there's there was a lot going on and, and still is going on. Right, right. I'm learning so much just talking to the different ambassadors and board members that I've had the chance to speak to. And, you know, I, education is huge. I had no idea how bad things were. And you hear about the brick kilns in India or the situation in Guatemala with some of the people that have spoken with me on the podcast. And I think a lot of people don't realize or, or don't think about it. It's not part of my everyday thought. So, so what you're doing as an ambassador, both of you, is, is so important. So how did you become an ambassador, Becca? Or did you, were you following Margaret's lead? Yeah, I mean, I had been following Margaret. I knew she was one of the founding kind of ambassadors for Brook USA. And she always spoke to me um, about it whenever we were together and kind of, she had a total passion for it and for the education. Um, and that kind of drew me in and I was very intrigued by that. And um, so it wasn't until 2018, actually, at the World Equestrian Games, um, where I actually signed on in, as an ambassador. And so I've been with Brook USA for two years now and actually three years. And um I've been, it's just been fascinating to learn about all the different programs and everything that they provide and they offer. And I try and help support that in every way that I can using my platform um, as an international competitor to kind of put awareness out there of what Brook USA is doing. And then also to helpfully uh, try and support and fundraise as much as I can as well. So both of you and, and so many people that I've spoken with are such strong women. And I know that the Women for Donkeys is, is something that is important as one of the Brook USA initiatives. And so, Margaret, could you speak a little bit about that? Um, is, is that one of the, the things that you've been really supporting lately? Yes, that is something I have been supporting lately. Um, as in any family, usually, usually I'm going to say this, so I don't offend any men, but... Um, Usually the women are the, the managers of the house. You know, they're the ones that go buy food. They're the ones that take care of the children. They're the ones that put the dinner on the table. They're the ones that, and, but also they were also, they are also the ones that take care of the donkeys. So I kind of helped them raise money to help educate the women. You know, first we were teaching the men and the, and the children. Now it was for the women. To, to learn how to better take care of to better take care of their donkeys, their, their source of income, their source of feeding and providing for for them. So and it's it has certainly um, taken off. People were really surprised that the, the women, you know, the women were more involved kind of behind the scenes. So it seems like there's this chronic lack of attention that is paid to working animals in some areas. And we've talked specifically about Kenya when you're talking about the women for donkeys. But right. it's because they don't perform typical livestock functions. They're, they're not there for food. They're not you're not making clothes, fiber, that sort of thing. It's there's the side of it where somebody may not know any better, but then there's also the side of it where they're, they're doing the best they can. And they, it's just that's all there is, I guess. That's all there is. And, and you know, you, you as I say, you know, you think of these third world countries such as Kenya, you know, that 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 they don't know any better out of outside of the big cities. 
And right. so you have to, you have to kind of, you have to go out and teach them and show them how, how to do things. You know, we, we live in this world where equestrian sport is an area where women and men compete against each other in the same divisions, the same classes. And so, you know, there's, that's leveling the playing field. But in other parts of the world, some women don't have a say so and don't get to make decisions about policy or anything like that. So um, is there a difference to you or can you speak about your experiences as equestrian competitors and in the show ring or in the training arena? You know, given kind of the circumstances that I, as an American woman, come from, I will never truly understand the hardships and everything that a Kenyan woman faces in those circumstances. Um, But I think important things to remember is that the FAO recognizes kind of the working equids really help to reduce um, the burden on those women and how important that those donkeys or equids are for them. for creating, you know, helping with the household duties, creating income. It also, where competing allows me to kind of have a a place to voice my, you know, have my voice heard. Um, Having that donkey elevates that woman's um, social kind of standing because her voice can be heard. It it gives her an opportunity to um, have a business practice and kind of opportunities for loans so that she can not only benefit her family, but also her entire community. So I think there, there are parallels there, but there are always going to be differences. Um, but it's so important with the Brook USA that their programs are the ones that kind of help bring just general awareness to it, um, not only for those people in Kenya and every other countries, but also for, you know, people within the United States so that we can appreciate the differences, but then also see what we can do to help benefit, um, to move forward and, and to create more parallels and, and help where we can. Margaret, how about you? Do you see any similarities or differences? How do you, how do you feel about that? I'm on the same page as Becca. And it is, I think it's, it's also showing the women that they can be their own person, that they can help, that they, you know, if they see a wrong, they can stand up and say, uh, 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 and, or, you know, try to make changes within their little communities. So I think that, that the, the, the women for donkeys is, is certainly helped the women become a, a, a better person. Mm. Little steps. The riders here, sometimes you have bad luck and, and so you, you kind of end up back down at, the, at that same space where the ladies are in, in Kenya. So, you know, you kind of have to claw your way back up. Exactly. Well, and, and like I said, that we're, we're competing on a level playing field and, and somebody told me once, you know, you might be at the amoeba tadpole division in eventing or, or whatever training level, walk trot test or whatever. But then you never know, you may have an Olympic rider right there along with you because they're starting a new horse, too. So that that does level things. Yep. And, um, and Becca, in your travels with with all the things that you've done and seen, do, do people seem to be receptive to um, when Americans come in, you mentioned that American thing and any bounce back for any of the people you meet up with along the way? I've actually had a really wonderful experience in all of the international travel that I have done um, because I try when I go to kind of 
look at the culture and look at where I'm going and have an open mind. Um, and I've always been quite warmly welcomed and really enjoyed learning from them because I think it's, it's a mutually kind of beneficial experience and you can always learn something wherever you do and whatever experience you're taking into. Um, so I've always, it's been, it's always been a positive. Some of them have been very eye-opening experiences, but, but always, always in a very positive and try and take it on an upswing. I have to ask, what's next for each of you? Any competitions in the near future? Um, so with COVID, it's been a little bit quiet this kind of summer. And with the games postponed, everything's been a little kind of up in the air. Um, but we've got, uh, things are starting to slowly pick up. We've been training at home and um, just kind of keeping our own horses healthy and happy. And um We've got national championships uh, at the end of October up in Tryon, actually. So we're going to be up in your area here in the next couple of weeks. So that's going to be the the first step, our next big step here. But still gearing up for next summer? Yes, definitely getting ready for next summer. We've got uh, Tryon is the first kind of qualifier for Tokyo or new qualifier for Tokyo. And then we'll come back down to Florida and do the winter season down here. And um, that'll hopefully put us on the right path. So how long does it take you to prepare a freestyle? Are you already, you have one already that you'll save and use next year or will you redo something brand new? How do you do that? So we had one for the horse that I'm riding currently is El Corona Texel. And um, he had a freestyle that we actually won the silver medal with at the World Equestrian Games in Tryon, which is very exciting. Um, but we've actually got a new one that we're hopefully going to be debuting in Tryon uh, in three weeks if we've got everything kind of situated. And we've been working on that particular freestyle for about six months now. It's just kind of tweaking mm-hmm. the choreography and the tempo and um, as we know each other better, we, his, his gates have gotten more expressive and bigger. So we've had to go back and, and touch on the music again. And so it'll be exciting to see, um, how it all comes to fruition here at the, uh, at the championships. So Margaret, what's next for you? Um, once again, COVID has slowed everything down and I am getting ready to gear up for the winter season, hopefully try and do something kind of kind of get back in the show ring hopefully you know kind of between that november december area they usually have you know a show so that's kind of where i'm at and then you know get ready for the uh for the winter show season so who who will you be showing this winter do you know already or you've got several that you think i have one horse his barn name is sammy and so he's he's probably the first one that i will bring out and are you doing a freestyle with him as well no we'll probably still we're not quite at the at the grand prix level i'll probably come out doing the i the um i1 i2 test for more exciting content tune in to winnie tales horse stories pony legends and unicorn yarns featuring the work of international equine clinician bruce anderson you'll find these podcasts and more at equusfilmfestival.net or on any of your favorite podcast directories. Early on, that was Equa Assist. Can you tell me what that is? Equa Assist is a program that I started because I had horses that had health issues, either a colic surgery or, or you know, let's we'll use one as a colic surgery and. I um, 
noticed that the horse wasn't doing so well after the surgery. And I went to the surgeon and I said to him, I said, he ain't going to make it until unless I get him home. So let's see what we can do. And they were all worried about all kinds of um, just, you know, just, yeah, I guess the care and everything. And I said to, to the, to the surgeon, I said, look, I can set up a stall, you know, that's just for him. It can be biohazard, you know, whatever, but I think he's going to do better at home. Mm. And so we got through, cut through all the red tape and we got it all done. And I went to the pony and I said, his name was, his name is Scooter. And I said, Scooter, we're going home. Well, he, from his head being dropped down, he picked up, his ears got forward, and he said, let's go. <laughs> and he kind of usually was a bad loader on a trail. He just marched right on, got home, backed right off, walked into the barn, and all the horses in the barn hollered at him, and he went, I'm home. I feel much Aww. better. So so with that, I um, said to uh, Dr. Orsini, and I said, you know, this would be something great. You know, everybody has nurses that come home, you know, visiting nurses for people. Right. Why can't we do this for for the horses? And so we talked about it. We developed this program and we thought it was really, really good. So we've taken the equi assist part and it is now part of the vet tech program at Wilson College so that. If you want to be a small vet tech, small animal vet tech, you can do that. But if you want to be a large animal vet tech, basically for horses, you get this extra training, which once again involves the teamwork, the doctor, the owner, the barn manager, the caretaker of the horse, you know, for whatever the issue may be. And it's a great way to help the vets that live out that live in the rural areas that they can take a take a, a vet tech that's kind of got the equi assist label and leave them with that horse if it's colicking or if it's foundering or whatever and they can go off and do their business and today with all this telecommunication and everything you can it's uh so it's something that's marching right along home health care for horses. Yeah. Well, I, there's a farm here in Camden that they have as a retirement type facility. And um, it's it's for end of life and show horses that have retired and all that. And um, I'll have to tell them to look you up because I have a feeling okay. that's, something, that's something that they might be interested in for sure. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. We've just graduated our first first kind of vet tech with the equi-assist slash equi-assist. So they're that's exciting. Yeah, it is. It's very exciting. Well, well, before we finish, ladies, is there anything else that you want the world to know about Brook USA? I mean, I can't think of two better ambassadors than the two of you, and especially with the team work, the partnerships that you've had over the years and all the success. Um, what, what should the world, Becca, what should the world know from you about Brook USA and why you want to be an ambassador? Just that, you know, we all have a love and a passion for our equines and we all want as women to provide opportunities and um, 
and say that there's strength there and um, support in your partner, even if it is an animal. And um, just to have Brook USA be able to provide opportunities and education for for more women is just a fantastic opportunity. Awesome. Margaret, how about you? What's, what are your final words about Brook USA? Becca stole my words. No. <laughs> I should have called on you first. Huh? No, no, that's okay. That's okay. I think, um, I think Brooke USA does so much for, for the people that do not have what we are, what we are all lucky to have, um, be it, you know, the finances to, to do the best, to be educated the best. So I think for for me, it's it's to get the name out there more and all the great things that they that they have done, which they're still doing, but also all the other projects that might come along that somebody might say, hey, this is this is something we really got to stand up behind. Absolutely. And, and support. Thank you both so much for speaking with me today and um, and for sharing your uh, your thoughts and your experiences with Brook USA. I think it's pretty special. Thank you. Thank you. 100 million working horses, donkeys, and mules support 600 million of the world's poorest people. They are the sole source of income for many families through the backbreaking labor of their animals. Unfortunately, the majority of these working equines are suffering from chronic welfare issues and premature death, nearly all of which are preventable. Brook USA provides funding for scientifically proven, practical and sustainable equine welfare programs throughout the developing world. We work primarily through Brook, the world's largest international equine welfare charity, which reaches 2 million working equines annually, benefiting 12 million people who depend on them. When we fund training for people and veterinary interventions for working equines, Brook USA effectively prevents and eases the suffering of these animals and ensures better livelihoods for people now and for generations to come. Projects recently funded by Brook USA include construction of permanent water troughs in Ethiopia, continuing education for veterinarians in Senegal, training for Maasai women who own donkeys in Kenya, veterinary interventions in Pakistan, disease prevention and training for animal health care workers in India, improved nutrition for animals in Guatemala, and so much more. We also recently funded emergency relief programs for equine victims of natural disasters in the U.S. and Puerto Rico. Please help us fund even more solutions to the world's most challenging equine welfare problems. like to take a few minutes on this episode of the podcast to tell you about a very special partnership. The National Horse Show, hosted at the Kentucky Horse Park, is one of the premier events in the equestrian world. This year's show will take place from October 23rd through November 1st and will attract the nation's finest equestrians. 
Today, we will speak with the president of the show, Jennifer Berger, to learn more about the partnership between Brook USA and the National Horse Show. Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and an honor. Thank you for having me. Sure, sure. Well, I've been so interested reading up on the National Horse Show, and I didn't realize, I mean, it's been around since 1883, founded in New York by a group of very influential sportsmen, and um, actually had it start at Madison Square Garden. So that's pretty exciting. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of this amazing event? Yes, the National Horse Show, you are you are exactly correct with its inception, and it was quite a grand, grand event. Um, you can imagine back in the late 1800s, and it's actually the oldest indoor horse show in the country, and uh, we've been able to maintain it that long with changes throughout the years. It's had probably three or four different locations, including Syracuse, New York, and Wellington, Florida before finding its um, home for the last seven years in Kentucky Horse Park, which really has worked so well for us. The horses can be outside with so much fresh air. The horse park does a great job. The USCF headquarters is right there to help guide us. And, um, of course, the Alltech is just a fabulous Mm. facility. So it works really well for us. Absolutely. Well, through the years, um, I loved reading that 1915, Eleanora Sears was the first woman to ride a stride and hearing about all the military influence through through the years and then the move to the horse park later on as well. It's, it's been so interesting. So, so that's exciting. And I look forward to seeing how things go this year as I look through the previous winners of the Grand Prix. I mean, it's a, it's a who's who for sure of, of the show jumping world, the hunter jumper world. So that's, it will be exciting. I know you're happy about this year's event, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, of course, along with the uh, work, we, um, we've we been hosting the Longines FEI World Cup qualifier competitions and supporting that league since 2015. And that is um, the reason that we get all the the best of the best, mm. uh, your, um, all your top riders. So, um, and they're all returning this year. I've just Wonderful. looked at an entry list and it's great. And of course the, the McClay class, which began in 1933, um, for all the kids in the equitation and two new championships, the Taylor Harris Adult Equitation Championship and the Hamill Foundation 3-3, which mm-hmm. is a great stepping stone to the McClay. Sure, sure. Well, that's exciting. And, I mean, I can't think of a better partnership between the show and Brook USA. How did you first learn about Brook USA? I think the world of Brook USA. Uh, I first met um, – Brook USA in 2016, Margaret Dupre, who's been a longstanding friend of mine for years, had an event. She's the founding ambassador. Mm-hmm. Um, she had an event in Wellington, Florida, to introduce a handful of us to Brook USA. And I immediately fell in love with the organization, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be a part of their growth. Being able to do that through my role as president, we always like to have um, a charity alignment, and Brook USA is our chosen charity this year. It's brilliantly run. I think the world of Margaret and everybody who's behind it, and I think it's a great cause, doing Definitely. so much good for the world, which is great. 
Well, the well-being of the the show horses that you see every day um, it it's so much in in opposition to the working equines around the world that Brook USA is helping. So it's it's an exciting thing to know that you're willing to to put that emphasis on the organization. So your organization partnered with Brook USA for this October fifteenth virtual film event. Why did you feel that that was a good fit? What what made you feel that the two that your your two organizations fit well for that particular thing? Well, having um, the ASPCA aligned with our horse show from decades ago, um, um, I think it's actually, and Brook USA with the welfare, the important welfare, we're both animal welfare um, organizations, and I think it's a natural fit. And um, it's just, it just works hand in hand so well. And nowadays I think the, the, I bought my tickets yesterday. I can't wait for the <laughs> film to come out next week. Um, and I think it's a, it's a great effort and it's a natural pairing and, you know, anything that significantly improves the welfare of working horses, donkeys, mules, and all the people involved with them is a plus in the world, right. especially for us animal lovers. So it's really, it was a natural pairing. And it's so it's so nice right now while everything is going on that, that we have going on. It's nice to have a fun, safe event that you can kind of watch from the comfort of your own home, and then you can go out and, and do your horse thing, huh? So. I agree totally. Anything that keeps people safe, especially this crazy year, right? Absolutely. It is a challenge. But you've given us uh, the Brook USA has given us something nice to uh, stay home and enjoy an evening. Definitely. Well, you've also announced Brook USA as the official charity partner of the 2020 edition of the show. What all does that honor entail? What are the things that, that we should expect from that? Well, we're going to be featuring um, 30 second spots. We have a our 10 our nine day event has a live feed the entire time. Yeah. So, which is a free to anyone who wants to go on nhs.org and on there we'll have brook usa banners in the ring we will have we will um, highlight their 15 and 30 second videos to bring awareness to the organization and what it does we have um we are promoting direct links for donations to go right to the organization and again develop awareness so much of raising funds is spreading awareness so we um we have over a million social media outreaches planned for the nine days that they'll be included with their logos on everything that goes out, you know, things like that. Um, we're really trying to promote a lot, especially this year, you know, focus on the virtual. We can't have the parties this year and the, the group gatherings, but we can focus more on what we can put out into the world, um, which is actually bigger numbers than people just gathering for a party at the event itself. Definitely. And maybe reach a different audience than you would have been able to with that in-person crowd for sure. So what do you see as the next step for this partnership between the National Horse Show and Brook USA? Do you see extended um, activities and events in the future? Well, we certainly hope that it's a great beginning to a long-term partnership. And I think um, cross-promotion with any of the 501c3s and non-for-profits, cross-promotion, sharing audiences, people who are interested in ASPCA and the National Horse Show, horse lovers are going to be interested in Brook USA and the work they do. You know, it's like-minded people. So anytime we can cross-promote, and reference, share marketing materials, and uh, help spread the word, it's a win-win. And um, 
I love win-win situations. Absolutely. And this is certainly one of them. Yes, absolutely. I'm on I'm on the Equus Film Festival team and so being able to be a part of things from that side and and to promote as many as many wonderful events like yours that we can that that's part of it too. So it's um I look forward to a bright future for Brook USA and the National Horse Show. And I know you're going to have an exciting event and it I guess will be happening in a few weeks. Yes, it will. October 23rd. Hope to have everybody safe at home, enjoying our live feed. (laughs) Definitely. And so that's NHS.org. Yes, it is. All right. Well, we hope that everyone will tune in and we'll check you out on the website and we'll see how things go. Thank you so much for being with us today, Jennifer. Thank you, Julianne. Stay safe. You too. Our next guest on the podcast is Joellen Hayden, who is an equine historian and researcher working on behalf of Brook USA and the Horse Heroes Initiative in particular, which is a partner organization of the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission. Joellen, can you tell us a little bit about your relationship, first of all, with Brook USA and how you became involved in their efforts? I would love to because Brook USA is one of my most favorite organizations, and I consider it an enormous privilege to be able to work closely with it. Um, I have to say that the first time I ever heard anything about Brook itself, Brook, our sister organization in England, was way back in the 80s. I was on in England for work, and I was on the London, uh, the tube, as they call it, the subway. And I saw a poster for this organization, Brooke, and it had a donkey in it, and it was about uh, welfare of animals in the third world. And I thought, this is good. You know, this is good. Fast forward to about 2014, and I am out at the Kentucky Horse Park at the Dressage National Finals in November of 2014, and I see a booth, and it is Brooke USA. And I walk up and I say, I want to make a contribution because that had stuck with me all those years. And in in the U.S., we had really not had an opportunity to participate uh, up to that point. So I I made a contribution. And at that point, I had I had retired not all that long ago. And I, I had felt like I wanted to do some things during retirement. And so I offered to volunteer for Brook USA, and that's how I became involved. You have quite a background as an historian. And so can you tell me a little bit about your history with that? Before retiring, I, I first of all, I have a, a bachelor's and a master's in history, but I never worked as a historian. So that's in my background. I feel that it lays, it lays a background in your life to think about things in a historical context, but that's not how my career unfolded. Eventually, for the most part, my career was working with the military. I worked for the the Navy Department as, and I did engineering management. I was a civilian managing uh, the building and and designing uh, engineering products, mostly uh, electronics for aircraft. So something that I would never have imagined existed or anything. But what what that did, and of course, I've been a horsewoman all my life. I began working with horses when I was a child. I have always been passionate about horses. So that was threaded all through my life, not as a professional, but as an amateur. I, I showed, I competed, I trained, et cetera. 
So uh, this was this was always a thread that ran through my life. And as a historian, I've only done things uh, that had to do not with my work, but with my my avocation. So I did some history research about a colonial town that we lived in when, when we lived in the Washington area. And then the next really big opportunity to do historical research really came with Brook USA when I was asked to do um, a website and do some research about the role of American horses and mules in World War One. And uh, I, it, I, I left it to chance. I thought this was really something that was very important. It was 100 years ago, you know, a few more than 100 right now. But horses and mules were widely, they were the transport mechanism. They were the, quote, horsepower for our armies. Now, ours, as well as uh, the British Army, the French, everybody, all combatants used these animals. Uh, motor vehicles were, they existed, but they were very unreliable. Mm. And when you got them out onto the battlefield, they were even less reliable because, you know, working on a, a, a smooth city street was maybe within their capability, but uh, out in the rough terrain of a battlefield, no. So uh, thank goodness that was the last war where we used uh, literally millions and millions of animals. And uh, many of those animals came from the U.S. I didn't realize that. How many came back from that big number? Oh, hardly any. They, uh, it was just, uh, they, when we sent the, the animals over, first of all, uh, more than half of the animals that were about 1.3 million American horses and mules went to France and, and served, a, a few served in Egypt and things like that, but they were purchased by uh, France, England, and at least uh, 14 or 15 other countries before we entered the war. Hmm. So remember, we did the war started in 1914. We didn't become involved until 1917. So we were, in effect, a neutral country supplying uh, equipment and supplies to all the, all the combatants. And they would purchase these animals. They were a commodity. Hmm. It wasn't considered important at all to bring them back. And in fact, it cost money to ship them back. So that just wasn't done. There may have been at most a couple hundred that came back and they would have been animals that were privately owned by officers who chose to take their own animal to Europe and then petitioned to have it brought back. But we also had there were uh, equine diseases that were rampant in Europe that we had pretty much defeated in the U.S. to some extent. And so even the head veterinarian of the army recommended against, against bringing animals back. They had to go through a strict quarantine. And I can imagine. you have to understand, they were considered a commodity. It was, there was no priority to doing this. Right. Well, and I've heard little stories about in recent times um, bringing back, there was a, a little donkey that the soldiers met up with in Fallujah just, you know, within the past decade or so. And his name was Smoke. 
because he found the cigarettes on one of the the sergeant's desk or something and ate them. And so Smoke the Donkey came back home. But I mean, when you think about that era and um, how how difficult it would have been, I'm I'm sure. So so then you're you're documenting all of these things for the website for the World War One Centennial Commission. And how does how does that fit together? Well, uh, first of all, I can't say enough good things about the World War I Centennial Commission, which was chartered by Congress and then not given any money. So <laughs> <laughs> like lots of other good things. So they, they got some grants from private foundations and worked on a shoestring budget and put together their, their documentation of, of World War I for, for really posterity was an enormous website. And they had, I think, about 125 organizations um, participating and providing information for the website. And Brook USA was one of them. Mm. So we became what's called a partner, partner organization. And we were given a, a template to work with for their website so that it would fit within their larger website, which was to be archived with the Library of Congress to be, it wasn't going to be lost. You know, this is, this was done at the highest levels. Uh And and so then Burke USA asked me if I would, would research and write this. And I said, yes. And I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I really thought to begin with that I would write maybe Oh, 10 or 15 pages, get some pictures. Well, guess what? Guess not. Uh, yeah. So it just, uh, I think I added it all up and uh, with all the words that were written and, and all the pictures I found, it would be about the same as about a 300 page book. Mm. If you just took it and printed it out. So oh, I can imagine. And so it's cataloged now with the Library of Congress. That's right. It's, okay. it's in the World War One Centennial Commission. So it's www.ww1, the numeral one, okay. not O-N-E spelled out, but the numeral one, CC. So World War One Centennial Commission, CC.org, mm-hmm. and then slash horses. Wow. That will get you right to our, the Burke USA page, but it's, and which in itself has a great many sub pages about all sorts of things, but it was astonishing to learn all about that. Well, and you even wrote part of the brookusa.org website. I found an area that was the legacy area and Emily, the little birdie named Emily told me that that was all you too. And so as I started reading through that, I'm like, this girl knows her stuff. (laughs) So it became a major project. It was, Mm -hmm. it took at least it took, I think, over a year. And it was, I mean, I just, uh, I kept going until I was finished kind of thing. And uh, it was a pretty big project, but I wanted to do it right. And I couldn't just cut off, you know. Right. right. Well, were there stories in particular that struck you and that you still remember? Was it, I mean, I'm sure there was just a lot of general information, but were there things that you just, you just took away and remembered? Well, I think what stuck with me as much as just learning about the process, how the animals were shipped overseas, what kind of boats they rode on, the diseases. They had a lot of respiratory diseases back then, which we still struggle with 
with horses today, but we have immunizations for flu and rhino and things like that. They didn't have those shots back then. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the fact that, that they were sort of a commodity and yet the people that were working with them were not the cavalry. The cavalry uh, as mounted soldiers really wasn't useful in World War I. And before we even entered the war, cavalry uh, raids and all that had stopped being used because remember, everyone was in trenches in France. And, and they shot at each other by popping their head above the trench and shooting something, uh-huh. shooting with a cannon, but hardly anything moved. I mean, they would just, it was, it was a stalemate. Right. And right. so riding a horse in that environment wasn't useful. So most of our horses really were draft animals or pack animals. Uh-huh. And so they weren't being handled by horsemen. Um, like the cavalry, they were being handled by supply clerks and wow. drivers and things, but they would get attached to the animals over time if if the animal lasted long enough and didn't succumb to disease or maybe get injured in the battle. But uh, but I think what really stuck with me mostly really was the photographs, um, a tremendous, a very heart wrenching in many cases. Um, very difficult to look at in many cases, but the website has a, probably as large a collection as anyone on World War One American horses in World War One. Wow! Well, and mules. I have to and, never forget the mules. Say, and the mules and um, donkeys. I'm sure. So, from all of that work, um, Brook USA has commissioned a very special project. So, can you tell us a little bit about that and and how it started? Yes, well, actually, the truth is that that was Emily Doolin's idea. Emily is our executive director. And the uh, World War I is really the, almost the forgotten war in American history. Uh, it happened right at the, at, you know, in 1915 to 19, really. And uh, that's a period of U.S. history that wasn't being taught even when I was a child. We kind of just finished with history class before we got there. And uh, so we didn't have a national museum for it either, nor a memorial in Washington. So all those things were put together with this World War I Centennial Commission and the, the National Museum for World War I is in Kansas City. So Emily decided that it'd be nice if we would finish our Horse Heroes uh, campaign and our Horse Heroes celebration of these animals by having a painting, an oil painting commissioned to give to the World War I Museum. And that, that, that painting is in process right now. And of course, we had hoped to bring it out and present it and have a little press conference and things. And with COVID, uh, that all got put on the shelf. But we will do that at some point. I think we'll hold the painting until we can actually get there. Sure, absolutely. Well, and I'm sure you want the artist to be able to be there too. Who will the artist be? Our artist's name is Yvonne Todd. Yvonne is from Lexington, Kentucky. Um, she and I actually went to college together. She's been an equine artist since since before we were in college. And um, she has been president of the American Association of Equine Artists, for instance. Uh, she's quite well known in the field. And uh, 
is working on the painting. The painting is featuring mules because the museum is in Kansas City, not Kansas, but Kansas City, Missouri. And Missouri supplied many of the mules that went over. I, I had yeah. read that it was really depicting the relationship between the drivers, the handlers, and the mules, and that that was that was supposed to be the focus. But there are also some details in there that maybe just a general viewer wouldn't wouldn't really understand. So can you talk about those, I, even specifics with the field kitchen and that sort of thing? Yes, we were looking to have a way to show that not just some romanticized version of this or something where the, the animals were all relaxed and all. We wanted it to be in the battlefield conditions. And one of the things that characterized that condition, those conditions was in the northern part of France, and during those war years, there was a lot of rain, and the soil there is a very deep, uh, sticky sort of soil, so that it was very muddy. And the animals would just get mired in mud up to their knees sometimes. So mud was just an eternal part of everyone's lives and made everyone's lives much more difficult. So in this painting, we have one mule who's a pack mule, and he's uh, that mule is wearing a uh, a pack, which was it's tied on with what's called a diamond hitch. And there was a man named Henry Daly, who was quite a character back then. And he was a, a muleteer. He was not in the army actually to start out with, but he had developed uh, uh, an underlayment for the pack, which is sort of, it's called a pack saddle, but the truth is it doesn't look like a saddle at all. It's, an, it's a thing that's draped over the animal to, to provide a base to tie the pack on with. And then he had developed this pattern of tying the ropes, which they, they end up in sort of X's and sort of, it was called the diamond hitch. And Henry Daly went around and he gave classes and finally he was inducted into the army and made a corporal or something <laughs> overnight. But honorary, honorary medals or something. And he was an ordinary sort of character, as I understand <laughs> it. But we have photos of Henry Daly teaching people how to tie the pack on. And then uh, in the background are two mules and they're pulling something called a field kitchen, which, again, was a, it's a very unknown sort of um, little piece of equipment. And it was something like, uh, not actually a pressure cooker per se, but it was a large kettle, very large, into which was poured uh, boiling liquid and, and food at the beginning of the day. And then packed around that, it would be an insulated material, sometimes just straw, but sometimes hot stones and things. And it was hooked up to a, a supply cart and altogether that was pulled on, and it may be, pulled four or five hours from the back lines up to the front lines. Well, by the time it got to the front lines, the stew was cooked. If it, I mean, if it was still in there. The lid was clamped on very tight. Okay. Yeah, the lid had, had, had clamps on it. So it was still in there and it was hot. And so it didn't start out cooked, but it was cooked by the time it got there. Yeah, that those field kitchens, uh, the Germans actually invented them. And of course, we were neutral to begin with, so we would have seen the, the German design. It has a, a sort of a, a cylindrical chimney coming out of it. And the German soldiers called it the goulash cannon. And so they were known as goulash cannons. I don't know if our 
troops ever used that word because by the time we got in the war, of course, the Germans were on the other side. And I don't know that that would have been a popular term. Right. Maybe not. Maybe yeah. not. Well, what I mean, with that many horses, I know just packing up for a show for the weekend, we're hauling loads of hay and grain and all that. How in the world did they feed them all? That is a really good question because um, and we, we transported an enormous amount of hay and, and uh, forage, forage basically hay and oats and other grains over across the ocean. It, you, as you can imagine, France was somewhat drain dry. Sure. And then uh, the northern part of France where all the fighting was occurring is some of their prime cropland. So they were unable to grow the crops that we would have had. So yes, we, we brought thousands of tons of hay over. Is there any way of documenting where horses ended up? They were sold for meat. Eating horse meat at the time was quite mm-hmm. common. Mm-hmm. So they were sold or they were sold uh, for, for draft animals to be used on a farm. And, and that kind of brings us to how did, how did Brooke... What is the connection between Brook USA and and how did all this start? And mm-hmm. uh, there is an amazing connection there because Brook is a part of the Brook family of charities. Brook USA is part of that family of charities, lo- uh, headquartered in the United Kingdom, headquartered in London, and started by a woman named Dorothy Brook. And Dorothy Brook was the wife of an English army officer, and he was stationed in Egypt in the early 1930s. And she accompanied him there, and she saw working in the streets of Cairo animals who had the British Army brand on them, horses, uh, and they brand on the neck. So it was quite uh, quite clearly these were. And she was appalled, and I have to say, Great Britain, England bought so many animals from the U.S., so many horses, that I do not doubt that the animals that she saw, some of them were American horses. Sure, yeah. She was a woman of great compassion. The animals were in terrible shape. You have to remember the war had ended as much as 12 to 15 years earlier. And they were not young then. So they were on their last legs, quite literally. They were skin and bones, many of them. And she, she came up with, to begin with, a scheme where she would want to buy them back. Her initial idea was to send them home to England to live out their days. But it became very clear very quickly that she would never be able to afford to do this. All of those, yeah. So a very few were sent back, but the majority she purchased in in Egypt and they were given a few days of good care and then she would have them put down because they were in terrible, terrible shape. But she also realized that they were doing vital work for the people that owned them. The people did not have any knowledge of how to take care of of a horse or a donkey but that they would just go buy another one. Mm-hmm. So she could she could rescue these that were English. Right. But it didn't really solve the problem at all. So she began to work. She opened an animal hospital 
where they could come for free treatment. The owners could bring their animals. She began a teaching program of teaching how to care for the animals. And from that work has grown the Brook USA and the Brook Family of Charities that we know today that works in a couple dozen countries around the world, always with the world's poorest countries. It just reminds me there's the new initiative, the power of one. It's that one person, that single candle. And um, that I think, you know, all the way back to Dorothy Brooke, it's, it's just, it's very visible with this whole organization. Now, the power of one is really about the fact that any one person, any one donation makes a difference. And it is not, we're not, we don't want people to think that you have to be able to give $10,000 or even $100. All, anything you give will make a difference. And we, we touch the lives of about 2 million animals a year. The work that Brook USA funds throughout the world, there's 100 million working equines in the world today, which is an astonishing number. I would have never had any idea had I not begun my work with Brook USA. Mm -hmm. We think that they support, each of them supports about six people, about a family of six. So that's 600 million people that depend on these animals and a great many of them, at least 80% suffer from preventable diseases, mm. preventable conditions, either malnutrition, not being cared for correctly, improper hoof care, uh, ill-fitting harness. Most, most of that really can be impacted by education. And that's what Brook USA's programs do, is they educate people, they make lasting change. And that's very important to me. I want to, I want to work with something where it, this makes lasting change. I don't want to just be something where you dole out a few dollars and then you leave. And things go right back to where they were. Well, I remember speaking with J.J. Tate, and she said that on their trip to Guatemala, she was struck by how welcoming the people were that they interacted with, but that, you know, they might find a tire on the side of the road and teach them how to make a feed bin out of that. And that that's something that it just sparked that creative side of how, what can I do with what I have? And so a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars would go so far in some of the places that we're talking about. And so I, I just love that that power of one idea. So that's pretty special. So I have to ask, what is next for you with Brook USA? I mean, you've done so much already. Do you all have plans once the painting is finished? First of all, before I even ask that, when was the time frame for the painting? When will it be done? Well, now don't pin me down too much on this, but I really do believe it's going to be finished in the next, say, month or two. And really, it's not about so much when it's going to be finished as when we can go to the go to the museum and make the presentation. So that probably will wait until uh, we're all released from our COVID right. uh, uh, process here. Because I'm curious. I can't wait to see it. I'm, I've seen a sketch, but I want to see the real thing. So that's exciting stuff. And so now I will ask, what what's next for you with Brook USA? Do you have big plans for any more projects or you're going to wait and see what happens coming down the pike? <laughs> well, no, they've, they've already happened to me. Um, I, I really been a, a volunteer for the organization for several years and I've been asked to chair 
the Brook USA Bluegrass Advisory Council, which is going to be a group of volunteers who will support the efforts of Brook USA and help plan strategies for our local Kentucky market. Um, we are standing up these local advisory committees throughout several parts of the USA as a way to cover the country. Uh, we can't, Brick USA doesn't want to spend its money on staff people all over the country. That is not productive for our mission. So we are trying this, this uh, approach of having a volunteer advisory council in various locations, and Kentucky's one of them. So that's my next effort. That's wonderful. Well, I can tell you as a member of the team for the Equus Film and Arts Fest, we're, we're housed in, in Kentucky now at the Kentucky Horse Park and have, have events every year. And so I think that film is a wonderful way. And of course, these podcasts and all the other media that, we, that are available now um, with the fantastic Brook USA staff in place with Kendall and Amanda and of course, Emily, there are just a world of opportunities for, for all of that and to get the word out in a big way. And so, you know, our virtual things with COVID going on, virtual things may not be so much fun all the time, but maybe we're able to reach a wide audience through them. And so we'll, we'll hope for that. So congratulations on, on that appointment. I know you're going to do a great job with it. That'll be fun. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Of course, uh, horses are an enormous part of Kentucky's uh, heritage. Uh, just as they are the rest of the United States, the heritage of the rest of the U.S. And I think that we have the ability here to to make a difference. And that's what my that's what my mission is. Well, I know you're, you're doing a great job already and will continue to do so. So thank you for all that you've done to bring attention to to the, the situation and to the plight of the animals. It's it's um, very exciting to, to hear about it. And I can't wait to look into it a little bit more. Well, thank you, Julianne, for um, have this opportunity to talk to people, and I'll look forward to hearing the podcasts, all the rest of them. If you'd like to support Brook USA and help this work continue, you can donate by texting ORANGE to 71760.